This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by AwesomeDice.com, the most awesome place on the internet for dice. Listeners like you, thanks for using The Tome's Amazon and DM Skilled affiliate links, and our wonderful patrons over at Patreon.com slash The Tome Show. Welcome to The Tome Book Club for December of 2020. The Tome is a D&D news reviews and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Tracy Hurley. And I'm Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-related book, Spoilers Be Damned, in full book club style. And our book this time around is The Sword of Summer by Rick Riordan. And with us, as always, is Eric Paquette. Hello, hello. How are you guys doing? Doing okay. Hanging in there. It is It is days before um, Christmas hits, um, and so... You know, we're just enjoying the holidays and hanging in there at the same time as one does uh, when they celebrate that holiday. And Eric's been celebrating a lot lately. Mm. Yes, two days ago was my birthday, so. Huh? But recently turned 27, right? 44, actually. Oh. Okay. <laughs> I find whenever. Or level 44, I don't know. Right, there you go. <laughs> I, I find that if I just always guess 27, whether somebody is younger than that or older than that, they're usually pretty happy with that guess. So I always oh. I always just guess 27. Nobody's mad at being 27. I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's just a number. It's just how many orbits around the sun I have missed. Right. And uh, for our next episode, which we'll record towards the end of February... Uh, well after my birthday, uh, we'll be reading The Hammer of Thor by Rick Riordan. So we are, we're continuing the series, um, and that's, that's an anomaly for us. We, 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 we often continue series, but we usually don't do them one right after another. Um, but I think my youngest son will be happy with that, because I listened to the first book with him, and I don't think he would let me wait the six months to a year that we usually wait before reading the next book. So, um, it's so always good yeah. to have a children continue to read or listen to right. books. So. I, I, um, yeah, I think he really enjoyed it. He was actually at one point very interested in coming on and being on the podcast with us to talk about the book. I don't think it would go well, but he w- was interested. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, all right. So before we get started in this discussion of the Sword of Summer, um, I should mention our sponsor, AwesomeDice.com. They are helping me pay the bills for the, the few months here. Uh, this time around, I want to point out their Sharp Edge Dice. These are the sort of precision-made dice that can get really expensive really fast from some places. But Awesome Dice has four different sets available that are all fairly affordable. Um, and I'll tell you what, the, there's a blue set that looks like it's been carved from Arctic ice that's really cool. There's, uh, and the other one that I really liked was the Spectre Red that kind of sparkles in the middle and looks like it's made out of magic. So uh, make sure to check them out at AwesomeDice.com and let them know that you heard about them from the Tome Show. Look, if you're going to roll dice, you're going to need precision. AwesomeDice.com has sharp edge dice for a fraction of the price of other such precision dice sellers. Chill out, my man. Oh, hello, Bard. Please, share your bardic inspiration about dice. Yeah, 
I've got Bardic Inspiration dice. Is this totally mellow cannabis theme set with smoky interior? Exclusively available at awesomedice.com. I see. Well, precision, Bardic Inspiration, or one of countless other unique dice sets. It seems you can get it all at the most awesome dice company on the internet, awesomedice.com. And don't forget to let him know the Tome Show sent you, dudes. Now, on to the book. So, The Sword of Summer is... So, it's a Rick Riordan book, which... Have either of you read any other Rick Riordan books? I have not. It's my first time. Okay. I, I've, like, I, I've mentioned before, um, I've read three different Rick Riordan series. Uh, there's two Percy Jackson series, and I've read them both. And then there's one that's Egyptian-based called The Kane Chronicles, which I've read as well. Um, and then he's got another one out that's Greek. Percy Jackson is Greek mythology-based, and I think there's another one that out that's that's Greek-based uh, as well that I haven't, I haven't read yet. But, um, but anyway, you know, I read a bunch. I read three series when um, my oldest was younger. And we listen to books together more often. Um, and so I, from those three series with Riordan, I had a real strong feeling about how things were going to go in the series. Um, because Rick Riordan's books are super fun and they're super lighthearted. And they all seem to follow the exact same formula with just sort of different cultural tweaks uh, and, and some narrative tweaks along the way. Uh, and so that that experience, I think, flavored a lot of my experience. Like, I've never been disappointed by a Rick Ryder book, but I always kind of know exactly where the story is going to go, at least over the course of the entire story arc. Um, I don't know if that's going to be true here because we've only read book one, but I suspect <laughs> I know where it's going. Uh, he seems to have figured out a, a, a formula that works really well for him, uh, and it makes for a fun story, so I'm good with it. Are all the books set in Boston? Um, mm, no. Yeah, <laughs> I don't think. Um, Percy Jackson, so they have their sort of base of operations at like a camp outside of any major town. I want to say New Yorkish. Yeah. Fred is saying um, Long Island. And K and the Candy Chronicles, I don't remember. I I, I mean I I think they were also in some some American city, but I don't remember which one. Are all the series in the same world or their own their own separate world and there there's no interaction it seems in this one with any other mythology. The implication is that all of these stories are taking place in the same world. Um, and so I want to say there was a moment in one of the books, in one of the Percy Jackson books, where they were like, hey, there was some weird stuff that happened over in New York or whatever uh, at this one time. And that's your, your hint that they, it was, you know, crossing over with, with another series or, or whatever. Um, and Fred is pointing out in the in the chat that um, they they each sort of take their own little region, uh, and that the Romans were based out of the San Francisco area. Although that came out in the Percy Jackson series as well, um, 
but of course that also makes a lot of sense for those to coexist because the Roman pantheon and the Greek pantheon have a lot of overlap. So was that a spoiler? <laughs> <laughs> Just joking. Historical spoiler. Yes. Historical <laughs> spoiler. Um, so anyway, so let's talk about Magnus Chase and the gods of Asgard. Book one, the sword of summer. Um, this is a story about a, a homeless kid named Magnus Chase in Boston uh, who is sort of has his his friends in the homeless community. This um, this guy named Blitz and um, and this other one named Hearth, one of which he normally sees mostly during the day, one of which is usually only around at night um, for reasons that become clear as we go on. Uh, and as the story progresses, there's some sort of threat, uh, that comes out. People are chasing him and it is determined, or he is, he eventually comes to the realization that he is descended from, um, a Norse god. Not just descended. Oh yeah, you're right. The son of, uh, of a Norse son of Frey. (laughs) Well, so it did, it took a while before we found out that he was the son of Frey because I spent several chapters having a discussion with my youngest trying to figure out what God we thought it was going to be. Yeah. Uh, and that was a fun discussion to have with him because, you know, I would say 90 plus percent of what he knows about Norse mythology comes from Marvel movies. (laughs) <laughs> yeah whereas i've watched marvel movies and read some marvel comics and also the neil gaiman book uh on norse mythology so my initial thought was going to be that he was going to be descended from um balder because balder is a god who had died and then come back to life yeah uh and at that point our our main character magnus had died in like I don't know, chapter three, chapter four, <laughs> like really yeah. early, early on in the series. Um, in, in to to draw the comparison, um, our main character Magnus dying early on in the story is this story's version of of Percy Jackson going to Camp Half Blood, where he learns about being a, a demigod and and what have you, um, because. When Magnus dies, he doesn't die. Die. He he takes on. He fights um, the gods or the the fire giant king Sirt um, on some bridge in Boston. Who cares? It's just Boston. <laughs> Get that look from Tracy. <laughs> um, he he fights Sirt and they and they both get defeated or whatever. And he's taken off to Valhalla. And Valhalla is sort of this story's version of Camp Half-Blood. Oh, and I, apparently I'm not crazy because Fred was also about 90% sure that it was Balder. So that's good. I'm not the only one who's delusional. Balder was one of my thoughts before you come in, like, could it be Balder? But yeah, I, my, most of my experience with uh, Norse mythology was with a hilarious series called The Almighty Johnsons where mm. the Norse gods are... Uh, reincarnate into the bodies of New Ze- folks in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you so. recommended that once, and I, 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 I found it. I might have watched like five or ten minutes, and then got distracted and forgot to get back to it. Mm. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah, I was leaning heavily towards Balder, but I think part of that is because of my lack of 
deep familiarity with North mythology, North's mythology. Um, I don't know that I even knew who Frey was or that Frey existed prior to this book. Like I knew Freya, obviously, um, <laughs> but I didn't know about Frey. I had a hard time because it turns out Fred often listens to audiobooks uh, at different points during the day. And I had heard the later chapters of this book uh-huh. without knowing what book it was. And so I can't remember anymore if I heard it, like, for some of these myths, is it from this book, which I totally heard out of context, or was it the other book we listened to mm-hmm. um, from Neil Gaiman or elsewhere? But yeah. I found it interesting. Um, Rick Riordan books are known for being kid-friendly. And it's interesting to then read a series based in Norse mythology and based in parentage in Norse mythology um, in a kid-friendly book. Because in a way that I don't remember it happening with, like, Percy Jackson, you know, there's this whole, like, they dive into, like, oh, Freya's got kids with half of Svartalheim or what, you know, whatever, you know, and, uh, uh, and, and, you know, and he knows from Marvel movies that Freya is married to Odin. And so there's this whole weird thing, like, how does she have kids with half of this race of people? Uh, but also is married to like, there's this, there's a, a, a conversation here that this book sort of implies, but never really addresses that is like, this is a, a different sort of story to tell uh with kids right like the greek gods got into all that kind of stuff a lot too but i don't remember it being as i don't remember thinking about it when i was reading uh the percy jackson books maybe mm-hmm. it was there and i just didn't remember but because yeah there, there's even in the comment of uh about loki for, uh, with uh slipnir the the horse mm. yeah which is part of mythology. Well, and it, it, it absolutely is. That is definitely a part of... I mean, if it wasn't part of the mythology, then the books would work differently. Although, that's not how it worked in the Cain Chronicles. That's the Egyptian-based um, Rick Riordan story. The Cain Chronicles, the children were not the children of gods, but they were descended from... Um, ancient Egyptian powerful wizards or whatever. So they had this bloodline of magic, magical power. So it was a little bit different in that way. Um, so anyway, I, that was just something that occurred to me as they were going through. So anyway, um, Magnus dies, goes to Valhalla, um, and it's a little controversial, right? Um He's taken to Valhalla and there's like, we have to judge whether or not you should actually be here. Uh, Or did your Valkyrie screw up by bringing you here? Did you actually die a warrior's death? If you didn't die a warrior's death, you shouldn't be in Valhalla. And this is the first time ever it's Valkyrie vision, right? So now they have like cameras on the Valkyries so they can know for sure whether or not it it was right. The Uh, We did skip something first though. Oh yeah, go ahead. So we know his mom died. Uh, it was like a traumatic event. And uh, I can't remember if it was Hearth or Blitz who said, uh, hey, somebody's looking for you and passing out these flyers. And it turns out uh, uh, it's his cousin and uncle and 
it looks like his other uncle is the one trying to find him. Yeah. Who collects all these antiques. Yeah. Randolph. Yeah. yeah. And and there's definitely and he sneaks into his uncle's house at one point and uh all this stuff. And and there's there's a strong implication that there's a larger story there. It doesn't actually play out in this book, right? Uh, but it, it, it is. Um, we it, see the start of it, and there's a hint of it at the, basically the epilogue of, of the yeah. book that seems to connect it to the story, but right. it does not do an act of part of the story. Yeah, yeah. They sort of introduce like, these family members as part of the story at the beginning. And yeah. then he dies, and they kind of mostly disappear from the story except for when he goes to sit to his own funeral and and the cousin pops up which the cousin who fred describes as american hermione um which maybe is fair i don't haven't read the other book so i don't know how she's going to play out she's still kind of a mystery at this point but other than that then they don't show up again in the story until the end in that epilogue and that was basically because he was told more or less hey don't forget these people you should go talk to them you should confide in them right yeah and it was partially because his mom was worried about the one uncle randolph uh, there had been a huge yeah randolph there had been this huge family fight and his mom had kind of told him not to trust anyone really <laughs> from the family which is a problem i mean which is why he has family in town and has been living on the streets i imagine yeah uh, but then he ends up so he gets that sword and one of the key question marks about whether or not he should have been taken by the Valkyrie is he didn't actually have the sword in hand right? Uh, in the end. And there's like some technicality. He had, yeah, he had sliced Surt's nose off and taken him off the bridge with him uh, and definitely had died in combat uh, and, and died bravely and valiantly. But the sword was not in his hand at the moment of death. And so there was some technicality of, well, you, he probably shouldn't have gone to Valhalla because of it. And they have, yeah, you mentioned Valkyrie Vision, which feels a lot like uh, Valkyrie body cams, right? Yes. Um, uh, but the, the, the footage had been edited to make the, the decision look bad. And they made it very clear, like, there's no real bad consequences for him if he's there and shouldn't have been that's not his fault so he gets to say in valhalla other than he might be like stuck on on dishwashing duty for for 100 years or whatever um but the valkyrie um samir is is demoted and kicked out of the valkyries because of it and she was already kind of on thin ice and, it, and people didn't trust her and the reason and it turns out later on we learned that the reason people don't trust her is because she is the daughter of loki which is a crazy family the loki family is is all kinds of diverse yeah anybody who's read who knows about the uh, norse mythology would know oh. how wild and varied that loki is one of the things I wanted to point out is it's kind of funny that as son of Frey, he doesn't have his sword at the battle at the end. Mm. Well, and yeah, there's a it's it's a weird like Frey is like what a god of summer and peace, right? He's the god of sort of moderation, uh, and which is also a little weird because um, summer is not the season of moderation in my mind. But okay, fine. <laughs> um 
Maybe maybe if you grow up in 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 Norway or or Finland, right? Then then summer feels moderate compared to what you get the rest of the year. Um, but yeah, so so Frey is this god of peace and what have you, but yet, like the story centers around his sword, the sword of summer, uh, and and it seems strange for a weapon to be so incredibly important to a peace god, but also the sword is super useful at times and there's fights where the sword comes comes into play at times but it's seldom like the pivotal thing right yeah um but the the big thing about the sword is that frey had bartered it away to get something that he wanted and thus he is fated at ragnarok to i think it was die because he won't have his sword so the fact that Magnus died without the sword in his hand kind of mimics that prophecy of Frey dying without the sword in his hand. Sword. So. Yeah, yeah. So he ends up in Valhalla. It ends up that he's not worthy. He still sticks around in Valhalla. He has to fight uh, the people. The the people in Valhalla. They live in a in hotel Valhalla. It's like a giant luxury resort hotel. And and the people on your floor get together once a day or whatever and have battles against people from other floors to the death. And but of course it's Valhalla, so you just come back to life. Uh, and time for dinner. Right. And so he makes he makes friends uh, that way. Right. And that's. That's similar. Uh, that's I thought there was going to. In, in fact, I thought this story was going to involve a lot more time on Valhalla training or whatever to mirror what I saw from Percy Jackson and the time spent in half, Camp Half Blood training and preparing. And there was a lot more of sort of the the Harry Potter boarding school sort of um, storyline for a little while, uh, as I recall. It's been a it's been a minute since I've read Percy Jackson, but. Um, but anyway, yeah, so so I thought it was going to do more of that. But they didn't actually stick – like, he stuck around long enough to get in, what, one fight in Valhalla? And then he was gone the next day. <laughs> so uh, – and part of him getting out away – or him, part of him leaving was because um, there's a tree in all of the hotel rooms. And it is branches from the world tree, Yggdrasil. Uh, and so his old homeless friends uh, – Hearth and Blitz show up, and it turns out that they are actually the elf Hearthstone and the the dwarf uh, Blitzen, uh, and then they they sort of get away from there because it's very important. Uh, Sam even told him when he when she was being kicked out that it was very important that he recover the sword that you find the sword, and so from there it's is it from there they. They, did they go straight back to Boston from there? I believe so, because they had to go uh, to see if he had the sword on, on his, his body, body uh, which is when he saw he sees his cousin. Yes. They see the cousin. Um, there was an attack. I forget who attacked him. Because the, the Valkyrie, or the, yeah, the Valkyries aren't chasing him yet. Mm. But there was an attack, because Hearth definitely got in, was injured. Right, so because that's Cert. Cert, that was the first thing that killed him. Mm-hmm. And Cert's still recovering um, back in Muspelheim. I don't remember. There was some sort of an attack. That, oh, it was, was it Sam? 
Well, so wait, wasn't it that his cousin was coming? But I know what you're saying about Hearth getting hurt. But I thought it was just the cousin coming in, but I'm not sure. The cousin came in, but I think there was also, like, there was a chase right afterwards. Um, right. And they and it turned out that what person they were chasing was, was Samir, who, who's oftentimes referred to as Sam. Yeah. And then, and then they see um, Blitz coming up from the subway. Right. And it turns out Blitz, being a dwarf, is always, like, has to cover every, you know, all of, all, all of his body head to toe and whatever because um, if he spends time in the sun, he slowly petrifies and turns to stone. Which is why when he when they were posing as homeless people watching over him, um, that he he only he only came out at night. Right. Uh, and Hearth is interesting because Hearth is like the only elf left in the world or in the worlds that is reviving the art of rune magic. Um, magic has sort of faded from from memory and all of these these different places in the in the nine worlds uh but hearth is is relearning rune magic uh and was it shortly after that that we find out who hearth and blitz are working for yeah because uh blitz is coming up with a bag that has capo in it yeah um yeah so then we find out that they are working for um is it mimir Ymir. Which is another um, Norse god I had never heard of before. Isn't also there that we learned that Sam was visited by Odin? That's why she was asked by Odin to go get Magnus? Or is that a bit later? Well, we find out she was asked by someone, but she won't say who, Ooh, I oh. think, until much later. Yeah, it, it, the the Odin reveal, I think, is right at the end, because everybody else is like, well, Odin's been kind of quiet for a long time now. Nobody's really heard, nobody's really heard from Odin in, in a minute. Yeah, no, but she does mention beforehand that she got before that Odin was the one who told her before we had the Odin reveal at the end. Okay. So. I do remember that. So. so yeah, so so there's Mimir who um, is looking out for him for reasons. Mm. <laughs> they all have the reasons. They're all yeah. Mimir is looking out for him for reasons, and so Mimir sent Hearth and Blitz after him. Do you notice the propensity for dwarves to be named after reindeer? Yes. Okay. <laughs> There's Thunder, I think, or something like that. Donner. Donner. Yeah. He's and he's blitzing. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself because we're we're not there yet, but yeah. And so, what is it from there? They were trying to get somewhere in the in the nine worlds. Was it they were trying to get to Svartalheim to the dwarves? Oh, because oh, okay, because that's when they learned about the Fenris Wolf. It was from Mimir, I think. Is that right? This is, this is the episode of all of us just sort of trying to remember <laughs> what the book was. Yeah, I know. <laughs> there was, so I guess we should take a quick moment and just say a lot happened in small areas of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there were so many different demigods and gods yeah. and everything yeah. else. So I know, like, for instance, we still haven't talked about falafel yet. No. Yeah, you know, you're right. There's a lot that goes on. And maybe going play by play isn't really the point. Um, 
because yeah, they, they they move about a lot through. I don't think they visit all the nine worlds, but they visit a lot of the worlds. Well, so. yeah, they end up they end up traveling up the world tree. They meet uh, or are attacked by Ratatosk, the 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 squirrel on the of the world tree, uh, and you get some of that Norse mythology story of how Ratatosk runs from the top of the tree to the the roots uh, over and over again, sort of um, churning up the rivalry between was it the an, dragon the dragon. Yeah. And the eagle. Yeah, that's right. The dragon at the at the roots and the eagle at the top. Um, and they end up in the other afterlife where Freya's in charge. And it turns out Blitzen is a son of Freya. And so we meet Freya. And that's sort of like the... It's sort of like Valhalla, but for hippies is the way I, re- I read Freya's uh, afterlife. Does that sound right? Yeah. <laughs> Because they because they they would like randomly just attack each other between yeah. like laying on a hillside looking at the flowers, um, and so that that was a whole thing. There was yeah there was this there was the story uh, where they went to and got falafel, um, and it turned out the falafel, the guy running the falafel stand is Samir's betrothed, um, although. That exact relationship doesn't come out until later, uh, and then they meet a a random frost giant who was shape changed into was it a pigeon? Yeah, a pigeon. Then I believe was an eagle afterwards. Convinced Magnus to go off on a quest um, to get an apple of immortality for him. I kind of hope that plays out more in later books. Because um, otherwise, it's just a weird side quest <laughs> to go get an apple for. You know, they also learn some information about. Yeah, it wasn't just the apple either. It was that's where the sword is. So yeah. while you're there, could you give me this apple? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was a river spirit, a river goddess. Randia. I don't. I couldn't remember if she was river or not, but definitely some sort I think, of water I thought, goddess. I thought she was out in the ocean, but I I could be remembering wrong, but. Yeah, she's definitely out in the ocean. The hard part is, I believe he dropped a sword in the Charles, which could have traveled out to the harbor ocean area. Um, but that would have been, I think she went in. <laughs> sure. Yeah, and she's sort of the the uh, ocean goddess of collecting junk that's fallen into the water, right? <laughs> and so, Bad uh, lady! Yes. Is how Magnus puts her. Yes. Well, which matches his frame of reference as, as having been homeless for several years. Yeah. Uh, and so they they manage to get that figured out. They figure out that um, all of this is happening because um, Cert wants to see the world burn and start Ragnarok. And so Cert wanted the Sword of Summer to free Fenris Wolf. Um, and Fenris Wolf is going to be, you know, the island that holds Fenris Wolf is going to be available again, you know, in a couple of days or whatever. And so it's a race to, to get a new rope to tie up Fenris Wolf because they believe the rope is going to fail soon enough anyway. Um, and make sure that Cert is not able to free Fenris Wolf and start Ragnarok at the same time. This is where I was fairly, I was fairly certain that they were going to fail and that Fenris Wolf was going to be freed because 
that fits the Rick Riordan formula. That they struggle at the in the in the first act, they struggle really hard to stop the end of the world, and then at the end of the first act, they fail. In the second act, they struggle with that, and in the third act, they find a way to make everything okay, even though they failed to stop the end of the world. You know, um, that's sort of the formula as I remember other Rick Riordan books. Uh, and it, and it turns out they they don't fail. They do manage to retie up Fenris Wolf. They do manage to defeat Sirt um, and and not have Ragnarok start. But I'm still not convinced that that's not the formula that's going to play out in later books. Uh, it's just not going to be dealing with Sirt using the Sword of Summer to free Fenris Wolf. It might play out differently. We've also um, added, once he gets the sword back, or after he gets the sword back after a little while, we add a new member to the party. Uh, that being the sword itself. The sword flies around and talks and is its own character and wants to be called Jack because its name is too long. As one does. Right. <laughs> um, so they they end up going to Svartalheim to get a, a new rope. They think there's a master um, dwarven smith that, that would be capable of crafting a new rope. Uh, I like the idea that the most powerful... You know, magical enchantments uh, in dwarven crafting is is formed by combining. Was it like two impossible things? Paradoxes. Yeah, two paradox or yeah, a paradox. So that was fun. And then there's a, a craft off between the yeah between uh, this this dwarf, which I think that's Donner um, to against Blitzen, right? Not uh, just any craft off, though. This one is now with fashion. Well, well, it wasn't originally, right? Uh, it was just a craft off, but then Blitzen turns out Blitzen is is a fine enough crafter, but he's really only good at fashion. He's not a traditional dwarven crafter. Uh, and, and ducks. Well, right, and that's not going to serve him well in this. And so the round they have three rounds, and round one he crafts a duck. That what is it? A duck that turns into a bigger duck? Is that right? Yes. Um, he only wins that round because a horsefly shows up and messes up Donner, and he screws up his his whatever he's crafting. Um, and then he starts to turn his skills to something else because otherwise, the only thing he ever crafts is ducks. So he's inspired. Well, embrace this this idea of fashion, and so he makes a bullet. What is he makes a a bulletproof vest to go with a, a like a three-piece suit. And then he also makes a, is that a tie? It's like a necktie that protects you, I think, from things. Yeah. So he makes he makes armor that's fashionable. Uh, and, and again, probably would have lost uh, every, all three rounds, but then a horsefly shows up and bothers Donner every single round. And that felt very much like the kind of stories I'd read in, in Neil Gaiman's <laughs> Norse mythology. Right? There's a lot of there's stories there of like dwarven craft competitions or whatever, and, and stuff like that happens, right? That felt like something that was very reminiscent of the mythology. Right. So, but but anyway, so that was fun. I, I also really enjoyed that in Svartalheim in the dwarves, like everything is crafted and everything has a name. Like they go to the tavern and it's like, ah, welcome. Have a seat in, in I don't know, 
buttholder, you know, whatever they're and, and they all everything has a name, right? And everything has properties and everything has a history. Um, and that sounded like a lot of fun to me. <laughs> I don't know that I would want to bring that into like my D&D game because I would run out of good ideas real fast and it would turn ridiculous, which is kind of like going ridiculous makes sense in the context of this kind of a story. So it worked. But I don't know that I would want it to be that way in my D&D games. <laughs> is it a good time to bring up that the author is a D&D player, like has played D&D for a long time? I actually did not know that about him. Yeah, I looked it up. So unless I somehow got it wrong, uh, I believe he's a D&D player. So which made total sense to me as I was reading it. <laughs> you, you do see the hints of D&D player in the, while reading the book. And honestly... A bunch of stuff, everything named fits my style of gaming because my style tends to go towards the silly and wild. <laughs> but it wasn't just like magic items. All magic items are named. It was like the the cup that you're going to drink your meat out of has a name and a history and somebody made it. And somebody made at least one of them so that if it goes empty, it goes boom. Yeah, one of them explodes if it's ever empty. <laughs> 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 so So that was fun. There, what other scenes were there? Um, well, so the other thing about the, the that visit to the, the dwarves is that she, they had to get earrings for good old mom. Cause, because mom uh, wanted it. Uh, mom being Freya, uh, Blitzen's mom. He wanted, She wanted new earrings. Cause she's, and she had like a pile of earrings there in her throne room or whatever. Um, so the implication being that Whenever somebody needs something, she sends them on a quest for earrings, you know? So I know you have to go get, like, this new rope thing, but to, to, why are you there? To save, <laughs> to save us all. Yeah. Or, at least, us all. or at least delay it. And, and actually, well, and actually, I, th- I found that to be go- interesting. I like that about, um, like, nobody is trying to stop Ragnarok. We run into multiple gods or entities yeah. or whatever. Nobody's trying to stop the apocalypse uh-huh. in Norse mythology. The ap- Ragnarok is going to happen. It's, yeah. it's not debatable. It's not questionable. It's just an issue of when. So they're just trying to buy some extra time. And, and that's yeah. all anybody's ever doing in, in Norse stories, right? Is yeah. They're just trying to get more time. Yeah. Do... I forget, do we get a, a hint of who sent that horsefly that was bothering Donner? Well, afterwards, yeah, we definitely uh, find out that the horsefly bothering Donner was Samir, shape-changed yeah. into, a, into a fly. Yeah. Um, and, and that's when we start to get some of the, like, she's real sensitive about, like, oh, I don't, yes, I can shape-change, I don't like to do it, right? Yeah. Uh, and we start to find out that there's a there's a history there's a a, a shameful um, heritage there that she doesn't like to talk about that eventually we learn is because she is the daughter of Loki, yeah. Uh, and then, so she has the ability to shape change, but because she's a Valkyrie and Valkyrie the Valkyries don't trust Loki because he's you know burned him one too many times, they as a result sort of extend that we don't trust you because you're the daughter of Loki and so she doesn't like to use her shape changing powers because it reminds people that she's the daughter of Loki. Yeah. Well, Loki, Loki would never do that. Yeah. Right. I mean and and Loki does show up early on in the, in the book and gets mentioned you know he's he is trapped and being poisoned and all that. Yeah. But he can still project himself 
Yeah, uh, no. In fact, we meet we meet Loki early on, and I think yeah, we meet all of Loki's most famous children. Yeah, uh, because we meet the World Serpent, we meet uh, Hell uh, or Hela, uh, and then we meet um, Fenris Wolf, uh, which are all children of Loki. And also Sleipnir, the, the horse. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that yeah. a is that a child of Loki? I thought Sleipnir was a child. I don't remember if Sleipnir was a child of Loki or if Sleipnir was like the father of one of the children. I don't remember now though. It's not that crucial. <laughs> but but we meet a lot of uh, iconic sort of classic um, things. Although it it turns out, you know, we go through all of this. They get the rope. They they go through the process of um, hiring the dwarves to take them out to the island that you know can only go, go out every so many years, um, and it's all you know Rick, classic Rick Riordan um, ridiculousness, right? Because one of the dwarves is dressed up in a lobster costume or whatever, and um, and all of that, and they're all very corny, and they go out knowing full well. And I enjoy you know I enjoy this as well because it's sort of like. It's sort of like Ragnarok. There's a lot of in in Norse mythology, from what little I've experienced, it. There's a lot of like, um, there is, like there is an inevitability, like things are gonna go pear shaped, and it's gonna mm-hmm. go bad, and there's nothing you can do about it. But you can at least be aware that it's gonna go bad, you know. And, yeah. and, and that's what it was with the dwarves. Like, well, these dwarves are gonna screw you over. They're going to try to rob you or they're going to try to kill you or maybe both or whatever, right? Uh, it's inevitable. But they're also the only ones who can get you to the island with Finra's Wolf. Yeah. Uh, and so they go anyway. Uh, and then uh, and, and the dwarves, their their scheme was, oh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's real cheap. We'll take you out. Uh, you'll take the tour. Oh, no, no, we're not getting off the island. And then they go out, out to sh- off the shore a little bit and says, oh, by the way, the return trip's a lot more expensive. You're going to have to give us all your stuff. Mm-hmm. Right? And they're like, ah, nope, we'll find our own way. Bye. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, and then they get to the island. They they find Finner's Wolf. Uh, there's this interest. I, I enjoy the sort of, what is it, the heather that ends up actually being the binding because the rope is more symbolically binding him at this point. Uh, the, it's mostly fallen off. Um, but the heather that grows around the circle, the pit where Fenris Wolf is captured, uh, keeps him keeps him in. Uh, and this is when Hearth is starting to to come into to his own as a as a spellcaster. Right, he's got his wizard staff now and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we're starting to see some more of that. Uh, and I enjoyed the exchange with Finris Wolf, but but in the end, they managed to get the rope tied up around Finris Wolf, which is where the sword comes in, right? They they tie the rope around the sword and have it like fly around him and tie him up. Yeah, use the sword, use Jack as a needle. Right, which which I think was part of the point. Like the power, the the reason that the Sword of Summer was necessary to tie up Finris Wolf was not to battle Fenris Wolf. It was to do this non-combat thing to tie him back up. Yeah. Uh, and then Sirt shows up and um, fighting happens. The, the, 
the roommates from Valhalla show up and turns out they're, they, they've been pretending to be hunting him, but they're really still on his side and they help fight um, Sert and the giants and the Valkyries are there and a big battle breaks out. And then ultimately um, he wins by, by what does he get rid of the sword? He, he ends up get, doing something that pulls all the, the giants sort of back into their portal. Yeah, he lets go of the sword, and the sword uh, rips a hole in space and time and pulls them through. Right. And so ultimately, it is by, by not using, by, by not fighting uh, with the sword as a child of Frey that he defeats the giants. Um, and, and then, oh yeah. And we had completely skipped, by the way, before this, the whole uh, getting Thor's hammer. <laughs> Oh, we skipped the Thor thing completely. <laughs> which, which turns out, I was, was going to go back to it because yeah, it which, which might be important since the the next book is called the Hammer of Thor. Yeah, because we learned that yes, Thor has lost his hammer. No, 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 he didn't. He really didn't, though. No, no, yeah, We're not no, told anybody. No, no, anybody. He definitely yeah. hasn't lost his hammer. Yeah, there's yeah. this, there's this whole like they run into Thor thing, and, and Jack. And the golden goose type, almost Jack and the Beanstalk type yeah. setup. Yeah, they have, Thor. Thor tasked them to go up and, and deal with these giants, um, and and recover his missing weapon that's totally not missing. Thor makes it very clear, like he doesn't have his hammer, but nobody can know that he doesn't have his hammer because then the giants would like run amok because it's fear of Thor and his hammer that it that holds the giants at bay. Yeah, there's the whole uh, rules of hostility right. commission and all that. All the direct stuff, and you see the, a few yeah. times the giants try to kill off just yeah. by respecting the rules. Well, and and the, these rules of hospitality thing it, that was interesting because um, because it's definitely the kind of thing I kind of remember hearing in the Norse mythology book that I read. Uh, that that kind of stuff existed, but I'm much more used to those kind of rules when we're talking about like fae stories. Um, of course, it would make sense that there could be some cultural overlap um, in, in Northern Europe and, and the UK at that time. Well, England, Scotland, what have you at that time. Um, but yeah, no, that 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 was the moment when I when it, it occurred to me like these kinds of rules. Um, exist in both of those mythologies in a way that that is probably traceable that it hadn't occurred to me before uh and then yeah and so anyway then they they we sort of get the 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 falling action right we get the turns out that odin was the one who set them all on this path all along and odin was actually was it odin that was actually in disguise as one of the floor mates that was on the team yeah, he was the half, the half troll. The half troll, yeah. So Odin was there with them the whole time, fighting and in Valhalla. And while everybody in Valhalla went, went to dinner and looked up at Odin's empty throne, waiting to see if he had anything to say or whatever, he was actually sitting there eating biscuits with him the whole time. Uh, uh, and so yeah, so Odin is revealed as sort of being the one who sort of set all of this into motion. Uh, but also then it is it is also revealed that the real villain this whole time that set things in motion on the other side to get Ragnarok kickstarted turned out was Loki all along. And, and 
Um, you know, Loki had shown up to Magnus early in, early in the story, um, and it was I think a couple times in the story shows up with sort of like, "Hey, I'm a nice guy. I'm just trying to help you out," and you kind of sort of believe him. Like they, and 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 you wonder like, how much do I sort of maybe think that Loki isn't a horrible person because we don't I don't know enough about this version of Loki to know whether or not he's massively untrustworthy um and how much is it you know just cleverly hidden or whatever but but because you know from other stories and other versions of Loki like Loki's never trustworthy period ever no he's a god of lies and all that and and the fact that he, but the fact that he's the god of lies, or you're not trustworthy, you can't trust what he said, doesn't mean that he's necessarily a bad guy. I mean, he can, he has his own agenda, he has his own layers and own plans he wants to do. I mean, character trap. All of a sudden, we'll find out throughout the series because he seems to be have several layers of plans. That, well, right, and that's sort of the implication at the end is like, well. Well, so Loki, your your plan failed. Uh, I guess, I guess uh, Ragnarok has put off for a while, and he was, you know, eh, well, let's not be too hasty. Like the plan hasn't failed yet; just this plan has failed. But I have plans within plans within plans because I'm Loki. Of course, I do. And that's that's where I I say like I expected by the end of this that Ragnarok would have been started because that fits my conception of Rick Riordan's storytelling, and I'm still not convinced that. That Rag- that they're going to stop Ragnarok. Ragnarok, in my mind, is is probably still going to happen. Maybe at some point in the second book, um, and then the third book is all about making that okay. Because ultimately, one of the things about that that I understand about Norse mythology is that Ragnarok is inevitable and it will definitely happen. But it's not an apocalypse like other mythologies have an apocalypse, like now the world is over, right? It is sort of the end of one age and the beginning of a new age. Um, and that's sort of what Ragnarok is about. And so it's like, it's almost, you know, it's almost okay. Like Ragnarok is fine because one thing ends, but another thing begins and the world doesn't end. Humanity's not over. It's just we're we're moving on to something else. Which if you read most most, most apocalyptic prophecies and all that, that's usually what it is. It's usually the end of an era and then right. end of age. The world as we know it is completely, completely changing. <laughs> right. So, that was a really long um, discussion of what this book is about. <laughs> and we talked about sort of what we liked and what we didn't like along the way. Uh, it definitely has these... Um, this D&D-ish feel to it sometimes. Like Rick Ryder and books move quickly. There's always a party. Um, they they move from quest to quest to quest, uh, and they all kind of tie together, but they're, you know, um, it's almost tangential, but then it all kind of comes together at the end. Like going off to recover the sword was absolutely necessary, but it was also definitely a side quest, right? Um, and so there's a lot of things like that that, that feel very D and D ish in its in its story structure, in its party structure. And for D and D, quick can easily probably bring the world magazines and use like Planescape to to do the various worlds and all that for even the concept of some of the characters. 
I mean, totally place game game. The, here's like, I don't know if either of you have ever watched um, any uh, Dimension Twenty. Um, that was the it's an actual play series on YouTube um, by Brennan Lee Mulligan um, that started on College Humor. It's still part of College Humor, but it's got its own separate channel and everything now or whatever. Um, but one of the things that that has shown me is how well D&D can be adapted to different weird and creative settings. So there is de- there's a part of me that says you could definitely just be in this world. You could definitely tell a story uh, in the world of Percy Jackson and, and Magnus Chase and all the others uh, and just play D&D, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like Hearth is clearly a low-level wizard who levels up as we go along, right? Um, you know, Magnus is, what would you say Magnus is? Probably a fighter? Jack is the fighter. I suppose Jack is the fighter, right? <laughs> Jack is the fighter. I don't think Magnus is quite the fighter. Uh, he's more of a thinker. But he's kind of a, I mean, he's he gets into a fight at the beginning with Cert, and, and he fights in these battles on a, like, for for a son of the god of peace, he doesn't. He does a lot of like killing in this book. Like it, it occurred to me like he is a teenage kid or whatever, um, you know, who grew up on the streets or whatever and what have you. But like the first time he gets into a fight and gets a hand on a sword, like he's killing folks, and it's not. It doesn't really bother him. <laughs> you know, it never at any point in time in the story does it bother him. Like. No, no, no. I sent this sword into the brain of a giant and slaughtered this person, right? Um, and you, it just sort of happens and they move along, so. Uh, Sam? Would she be a, what, a paladin? Maybe. Although, uh, Fre- Fred was suggesting maybe Druid for for Magnus? I don't know. Because Sam's wild, Sam's shape changing could be wild shape, and she could be the druid. Or, yeah, yeah. be a druid. Yeah. yeah, Magnus does have the healing abilities. Oh, he's the cleric. Yeah. Maybe that's... Cleric what... makes sense for Magnus. So. Or paladin, because it's more of, like, lay on hands. He doesn't yeah, do it very often. true. Yeah, so he could be the paladin for kind of healing and type know. thing. So, yeah. It, they're... Some of the, like some of them are easy to right. put in, but some are. Any case, the point. The, I think the so. point being that you could totally have, you could totally make a campaign, of yeah. of this book, um, yeah. and play it just straight up D and D rules, just living in a world where you know you could still be on Earth and you could still be whatever class you are, and you could still have magic and what have you, and just kind of be okay with the fact that most of the rest of the world has no idea that the world is like that. And there yeah. has to be sort of this, this con- social contract at the table that, like, okay, but, like, we're playing a game where the rest of the world doesn't know this, and you kind of have to maintain that illusion. Like, you can't just blow all that up on, on, on the first encounter and just, like, tell the world that, that there's gods and stuff running around because... That would sort of break the game a little bit. Right? That would sort of break the aesthetic of the setting. So, yeah. and outside of D and D, there's also other games that exist out there that, are, that go specific for that one. Yeah, like there's part-time gods where you balance between being the child of a god and so your godly powers and uh, just maintaining a normal life. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
normal mortal life. So you balance an elder scion also from White Wolf. Uh, that also, again, the concept that you are the son of Diades. Uh, Nobilis is another game that. Uh, so there's other games too that deal with being part of divinity. Absolutely. All, and, and, and as you say that, it occurs to me, even again within D&D, um, you could very easily, I think, reskin the mythic odyssey of Theros, um, yeah. which is very much Greek god inspired, right? And just sort of reskin it to make it work and, and use that yeah. um, to be champions of various gods and tell these stories. So, um, And then one thing that I did find interesting that you could also bring into D&D from the book uh, is the magic of place. So it is the most coherent explanation or of Boston that I've ever uh, <laughs> come across. Well, yeah, I, I wondered if that wasn't part of... Um, Fred had suggested this book to us last time we, we chatted, and I wondered, as I was going through it, and you were reading it, and, and, I, and I'm reading it myself, and I'm catching all the Boston, and I'm like, oh, I wonder if that's why he, he um, suggested this one as opposed to all of the other Rick Riordan books, um, because it's got that Boston connection, and I wondered how, how well that... Uh, felt to you yeah and because <laughs> trying to explain boston is interesting to me and i'm and it's the only city i've ever lived in so i mean i've lived in other places but not a city but the differences just in the, the neighborhoods like how the north end feels different than um southie and stuff like that mm -hmm. and the fact that the north end isn't really north anymore because of how the topology of boston has changed over time uh, they filled in um back bay <laughs> to make more land that's the place where they t they're talking about all those mansions uh -huh. um the brownstones they have to keep putting the pilings down and that's because they filled in a water body to create more land <laughs> and so things that used to make sense don't make sense in the same way anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so it just, uh, and it has that old world field in some areas and like the whole fact you have public alleyway number X, Y, Z sort of thing. So I thought that was pretty uh, interesting and, and cool with it. And I like the ducks being accessed to, to the world tree. Yeah, well, and that's the thing. And so it's like made all these things make sense. So I'm just now I'm like, was there actually a group of people once upon a time that thought Boston was first found that in terms of Europeans by the Norse? By the Norse, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the hub of the universe was a real thing even before the book. Oh yeah. <laughs> nice. So yeah, no, I I thought it was a fun book. Obviously, um, we we all must have thought it was a a fun thing because. Um, this is the first time I think we've ever done a, a book that was part of a series and then immediately gone on to the next book of the series. So um, there we are. Any, any other uh, last thoughts or things to say? Because we are at a little more than an hour now. The chat room, by the way, is all Fred. Yeah. <laughs> we've got a bunch of people in the chat, but he, Fred's the only one that wants to talk to us. Thank you, Fred. No, don't be sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, but yeah, no, me, when I started the book, I wasn't too sure about Magnus as a character. I had some issues, but as, as you go along, he grows up and cause at the start of the book, I wanted like, I felt he was a pesky teenager and I, mm. and I just wanted like, okay, I just want to slap you in the back of the head and 
but as he as he goes along, he grows up and he learns and gets better. Yeah, and there's definitely like there's differences. As much as I talk about how Rick Riordan has a formula and he follows it, and, and that's still feels absolutely true. And there's definitely differences between Magnus Chase and Percy Jackson. I don't know that it would be inaccurate to describe it as Magnus Chase still to me feels like just a Norse version of Percy Jackson, <laughs> like as a character. Um, you know, Rick Riordan does not have a wide breadth of storytelling um, tropes that he falls back on, right? Uh, but he does this type of storytelling in a way that I find entertaining. Uh, and I guess other people do too, because he keeps doing it and he keeps working. He keeps selling books. So, so there we are. Any other last thoughts? All right. Then we're going to go ahead and call that the end of the episode. It's time to say goodbye. I want to say thank you to awesomedice.com as well as all of our patrons at patreon.com slash the tome show. And those of you who shop at Amazon and DMs Guild using the affiliate links that are available at thetomeshow.com. And if you'd like to contact us, you can send us an email, thetomeshow at gmail.com. You can call our biz line. It's 919-B-I-Z-T-O-M-E, 919-BizTome. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at SarahDarkMagic. That's Sarah with an H and SarahDarkMagic.com. You can find Jeff at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H, and at the Tome Show. And you can find Eric at Eric M. Pack. Eric with a C, Pack with a Q. And watch our stream of episode recordings on twitch.tv slash tomeshow or watch the video after the fact on the Tome Show's YouTube channel. Show notes and other great shows at tomeshow.com. And that's our thoughts on The Sword of Summer by Rick Riordan. So next up in February, uh, around the end of February, we will be reading The Hammer of Thor by Rick Riordan. Uh, so if you want to read the book and join us in the stream and tell us about what you read, um, be our, our, our silent guest who's still talking to us that way, um, that would be awesome. I'm sure Fred would, would love to have the company. So uh, until then, keep turning the page, Tomites. Oh, wow.